Good morning. morning. My name is Lori Atkins. Tim is speaking to a group up in the Virginia area. So for those of you who knew Tim wasn't going to be here, thanks for showing up anyway, not staying home. And for those who didn't figure it out until you got here, (laughs) thanks for not leaving (laughs) and uh, sticking around. There are big shoes to fill, but we have a good lesson today. If you've ever come to class and felt like it moved maybe a little too rapidly, that there was a lot to, to take in and you felt maybe intimidated or inhibited to participate. Today is not that day, and this is not that class. So if you want to make sure that I have enough material to cover an hour, you need to join in the discussion and, and participate with us. So uh, let's bow our heads and start with prayer. Father God, we're, we're so thankful for... Um, the opportunity to come together, to meet with this class, uh, for your provision, um, for this day, for what it represents, for this weather. Um, We would pray that you would continue to bless this ministry, bless this class, and and all the the folks and the families that are represented here and online and abroad. Um, We pray for Tim in his uh, engagement today. We pray that you would give him words to speak and that you would give his, his listeners ears to hear. Um, We pray for this community. We have tons of students in the next week or so that are taking finals and exams and graduating, and we would just pray your your hand of blessing be on them, your guidance in their their future endeavors. And uh, we ask that you uh, fulfill your promise. You've said if we gather together that you're going to be right here in our midst, and we are anticipating that. We're on tippy toes uh, waiting to to see what you will reveal about your character to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're studying Lesson 7 in our quarterly uh, that's entitled Feed My Sheep, studying the first and second letters of Peter. This week's lesson is titled Servant Leadership. So leadership is kind of a hot topic. Leaders in business, leaders in government, church leaders, team leaders... Lots of leaders, maybe sometimes more chiefs than Indians. There's countless books written on the topic every year, tons of classes or seminars you can go to to teach you how to be a good leader. So just to check, I put just the word leadership in the Amazon book search engine and imagine how many results it returned. Any guesses? It returned 184,106 book titles involving leadership. So what makes a good leader? Are there consistent traits or qualities that effective leaders have in common? Is there a way for us to tell who is or who will be a good leader? Think about maybe some of the people that you have worked for or worked with or that have struck you, inspired you as good leaders, what are some of the common characteristics of those folks, of successful leaders? Yes, Kathy. They're willing to get down and work with you. So get their hands dirty, kind of get down in the trenches, not just supervise. Okay. They're organized. Okay. They don't always follow the crowd. Usually there's Mm -hmm. somebody who stands out in the crowd who's not afraid to... Stand up for what they believe in. Right. That, to me, is really attractive. Maybe think out of the box, innovate a little bit, not just done what's always been the way it's always been done. Think compassionate. Mm. Any other qualities? A knowledge of the material. Interesting. Presented or um, necessary to do the task. Some expertise. I found that to be true as well as uh, a knowledge and a willingness to admit what they did not know. And put maybe a team around them, because you can't be an expert in everything, but you can find expertise and surround yourself with it. Other common traits I found were vision. They have to be able to have a vision, create a vision, see either where they want to take a company, where they want to take a a team, or where they want to take a church. And then they have to be able to communicate that vision. You can have a vision, but if you can't let everybody know about it and get behind you, then it's just yours. They inspire they innovate, as Teresa said. How about willing to step up when somebody else is gone? Oh, interesting. So really teamwork. 
the team, the whole team fails or the whole team succeeds. I think honestly, too, um, I had a little bit of a problem with my car, so the mechanic duct taped it. <laughs> and he said, because the salt was getting into the uh, mirror thing. Right. And rusting and something broke off. So the thing is, he said, when you sell the car, take that off and just sell it. I, I can't do that. <laughs> You know what I mean? But the thing is, you know, honestly, I think... Uh, Integrity, honesty, but this is the South, so duct tape is a viable repair source. I mean, you got to give the guy that. So these days on social media, think about your social media connections, if you have them. If you like someone's Instagram and you don't want to miss any of their photos that they post, what do you do? If you happen to participate in the social media sewer known as Twitter and you don't want to miss someone's asinine tweets, what do you do? Follow them. You follow them. Instagram queen Selena Gomez has 118 million followers. Does this make her an effective leader? Katy Perry has 97,298,907 Twitter followers. Is she a good leader? I've also known people in my life who were able to communicate a vision in such a way and inspire folks in such a way that they would quit their jobs, pack up their families, and move across the country in order to keep working for that leader. So is having followers or people being willing to follow you necessarily an indication of strong leadership? So we're going to talk more specifically about servant leadership in Tuesday's lesson and whether a servant leader maybe exhibits different qualities than we've been talking about. But this week's lesson tends to focus exclusively on the importance of leadership traits, these leadership traits in church leadership. And we're talking about the church proper the organized, institutional, bureaucratic, political church. And sometimes nothing can reduce the selfless and servant posture from folks like a little organizational power and prestige can, right? Even if it doesn't start out that way. So let's look at Sunday's lesson. It's entitled Elders in the Early Church. And I want to revisit kind of the context and the history uh, surrounding who Peter is addressing in these letters, what's happening at the time. So these are brand new churches. The apostles are out evangelizing like crazy. The Holy Spirit is moving. New members, new churches are being added all the time. And the needs became overwhelming pretty quickly. So this rapid growth, it's not a bad problem to have. Lots of churches would love to be able to say, man, We just have too much growth. We're adding too many members. But the early church rapidly outgrew the apostles' ability to manage it effectively. And there ended up being some logistical issues, uh, some growing pains, and a real need for a more defined structure in the organization. Don't forget they had multiple ethnicities, cultures, religions, nationalities coming together but each one had significant differences in traditions, beliefs, and worship practices. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> in fact, this first controversy listed in Sunday's lesson was based on one group's perception that they were being discriminated against by the other groups. So these first elders were selected and ordained to handle some of the administrative, logistical, organizational needs of the new churches, And so that the apostles who are out preaching and evangelizing and spreading the gospel wouldn't be hindered by those administrative tasks and they could spend their time where it was best, best utilized. So the elders were given many different roles in Christian, in early Christianity. They helped establish more structure in their local congregations. And since many were already leaders in their communities, they sometimes acted as teachers, they filled in as preachers. And they ensured that the needs and well-being of their communities were being met. So this, this lesson kind of uses elders in a broad overall term. But there were actually two, at least two different uh, roles in the early church. And they're still there today. But I didn't really understand the difference. And in the teacher section, 
It explained and made a distinction between the roles of deacons and the roles of elders. And it said, although the apostles were the early church's first leaders, Acts 6, 1 through 6, describes the earliest attempt to draft additional leaders to share the organizational and structural responsibilities more effectively. These men were later called deacons, which means the Greek word for deacons means those who minister to the needs of others. Subsequently, the apostles also found the need to appoint spiritual leaders in each church congregation. And these men were known as elders, and they were literally older men of age and experience. The apostles were itinerant leaders. I had to look that word up. That means traveling, roving, moving leaders, while the elders were local church leaders, and the deacons helped provide the organizational and administrative support. So that gives you some idea of the distinction between those roles and responsibilities. So in Monday's lesson, let's talk about the elders in particular. So in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, Peter gives some instruction to the new elders and to the church leaders. And he says, to the pastors and teachers among you, I call on you as a fellow pastor and teacher who witnessed Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glorious recreation to be revealed Protect God's flock selflessly, like loving shepherds, serving as guides and guardians, not out of obligation or requirement, but freely, as God designed for you to do. Watch over it willingly, not seeking reward or payment, but eager to serve others, not like dictators exercising power and authority over those entrusted to their care, but modeling servant leadership to your flock." Then when the chief shepherd returns, you will be crowned with the glory of Christ's perfection that will never fade away. That was from the remedy. And in this text, Peter calls himself a fellow elder, pastor, and teacher. So he's identifying himself in the same role as these these new elders. So when he gives this advice, do you think that's coming from a place of his personal experience? And maybe him learning what not to do? Or how not to act. Because so you remember, he, this is the, all the apostles, these are recent converts, even though they've been following Christ for three and a half years. They've only recently been converted in their hearts and had the Holy Spirit to where they love others more than self. And are there ways for these principles, the principles that you just heard described, are those unique to church leaders? Or these principles to apply to each of us, regardless of whether we have leadership roles in the church or not. So many times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to in the role of shepherd. The good shepherd. In our previous text, he's called the chief shepherd. So it's interesting that Peter, in this text, likens the role of an elder to a shepherd tending God's flock. Jesus asked him three times. Need my, my sheep. So, does this give us any insight into the significance of the roles of elders if they are given the responsibility to tend God's flock here on earth? Are they Christ's representatives here on earth in the church? We all are. Yes. All Christ's representatives. Absolutely. And I don't think anymore they make as much distinction of who should be an elder and who shouldn't as they used to. I think those lines have been blurred some. It's yeah. almost like who would be willing. Yeah. Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit. Um, who leaves their name in the nominating committee. Correct. Yeah. So, so some of the qualities listed in the lesson that make, a, make good elder material, back when they were using these criteria for selection, there's many parallels to the effective leadership traits that we just discussed. One was patience. I mean, as in a... A shepherd with his sheep, there's a patience, there's a long-suffering, um, humble, willing, eager to serve. I have now no compulsion, guilt, and I have in parentheses, nominating committee time. Manipulation. I mean, we see this go on. It's definitely the 80-20 rule, usually in church service, where there's a select few who are willing to serve, and they get, they get tasked 80-90% of the time. 
These men were nurturers and overseers. They were ready to function as examples rather than dictators. They had to have spiritual maturity, fully understand God's method and principles of love so that they could foster the spiritual development of each new congregation. Tuesday's lesson, kind of the heart of uh, this week's lesson, it's entitled Servant Leadership. So what do we think when we hear servant leadership? Do we think of that in different terms than we were talking about leadership before? How is it different? That's what our government's supposed to be doing for us. Interesting. It's for the people. Right. By the people. Serve the people the best for them. Not for yourself and not what you can get out of it or right. not what you look like. It's hard to recognize these it's like days. like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Yeah. Getting on his hands and knees and washing their dirty feet. Okay, we're going we're gonna to talk extensively about that. So, I did another Google search for uh, servant leadership. And a lot of the qualities that we just talked about came up. But in addition, there were some that weren't previously mentioned. Traits like a person of character, someone who puts others first, a compassionate collaborator, someone who leads with moral authority, empathy and healing, stewardship, someone who builds community. What's the common thread running through all of those characteristics? Unselfishness. Yeah, selflessness. Which may seem a little counterintuitive to someone in a leadership position or a position of power, authority. And it leaves little doubt why Jesus was the quintessential servant leader. For me, nothing illustrates the servant leadership concept better than the picture of Jesus we get a glimpse of in John 13, 3 and 4. In the remedy, it reads... Jesus knew that his father had placed all things, whether in heaven or on earth, in his hands, and that he had come from God to reveal him and was returning to God when his mission was complete. So in order to give his disciples a further revelation of God, he got up from his meal, took off his outer garment, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Then he poured water in a bowl and began to wash the dirty feet of his disciples drying them with a towel that was tied around him. That's some picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture, especially when we remember that two of those feet were about to betray him. So one of the founders of our church, Mrs. White, expands on this story in her book, The Desire of Ages. But again, we want to make sure we have a good grasp of the context the setting, the recent events that had taken place right before the Last Supper. So if you remember, were the disciples at this point all in one accord? Were they a cohesive team? One for all, all for one? Not so much. They were bickering amongst themselves. They were jockeying for position in Christ's kingdom And the mother of the sons of thunder had just come to Jesus and asked him to please put her two sons at his right hand and at his left. Think that caused any conflict amongst the team? Here's what the Desire of Ages says about that encounter. Jesus bears tenderly with them, not rebuking their selfishness in seeking preference above their brethren. He reads their hearts. He knows the depth of their attachment to him. Their love is not a mere human affection, though defiled by the earthliness of its human channel. It is an outflowing from the fountain of his own redeeming love. He will not rebuke, but deepen and purify. Which I just think is remarkable. You know what I mean? Because on the surface, this is as haughty and tacky as you can get. But he knows, he knows their heart, he knows the motivation and where it's coming from. And even though it's packaged in our ugly human wrapping, he understands and he knows that's something he can work with. He's going to deepen it, he's going to purify it and refine it. So based on that bit of background, here's what she says about Christ's act of servant leadership. 
another cause of dissension had arisen. This is other than the bickering and the brothers. At a feast, it was customary for a servant to wash the feet of the guests. And on this occasion, preparation had already been made for the service. The pitcher, the basin, and the towel were all there in readiness for the feet washing. But no servant was present. And it was the disciples' part to perform it. But each of the disciples, yielding to wounded pride, determined not to act the part of a servant. All manifested a stoic unconcern, seeming unconscious that there was anything for them to do. But in their silence, they refused to humble themselves. How was Christ to bring these poor souls where Satan would not gain over them a decided victory? How could he show that a mere profession of discipleship did not make them disciples or ensure them a place in his kingdom? How could he show that it is loving service, true humility, which constitutes real greatness? How was he to kindle love in their hearts and enable them to comprehend what he longed to tell them? What this is saying is he understood that this act he was about to perform was maybe the only way to save them, to convert them, to give them an example of what loving service looked like. Yes. I got a comment from today and yesterday. Yes. When you're talking about Jesus, since I was a little boy, I was afraid of elders. You know, I was, when you're running in the church, the elders, they all <laughs> you, you know, put here. Yes. You know, when, when, Jesus, the Bible said that, Jesus, that children come to Jesus. That means he was very even patient with the children. Yes, and open and inviting. It's amazing. Since I was a little boy, I've become a Christian. I've been since I was six years old. And I saw that, you know, uh, I wish we need to be more friendly. Yes. Talking about the ancients, we need to be... I was thinking, if you think about you're 60 years old, you got a lot of things to help young people. A lot of experience and insights. Instead of me judging, you know. Oh, it's so true. It's hard for with my own child. I'm raising now, you know, he's 21. Mm-hmm. I'm a single father. I'm raising him. He's 21. He's trying the world. And sometimes I get angry with him. And, uh, and the Lord said, the Spirit said, don't be angry. You're dead too. Yeah. I was 17 years old. I left the church and prayed for John. Right. That is so, thank you for sharing. How many others have been intimidated or afraid or tried to avoid the elders the overseers in the church and it may be it may be similar to the recording angel that that we used to have stand up on stage during children's stories and what a distorted picture i think that that gives kids about how it all works thank you for sharing that all right more more of this quote it's a long one we'll break it up The disciples made no move toward serving one another. Jesus waited for a time to see what they would do. Then he, the divine teacher, rose from the table, laying aside the outer garment that would have impeded his movements. He took a towel and girded himself. With surprised interest, the disciples looked on and in silence waited to see what was to follow. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he was girded with. This action opened the eyes of the disciples. Bitter shame and humiliation filled their hearts. They understood the unspoken rebuke and saw themselves in an altogether new light. So Christ expressed his love for his disciples. Their selfish spirit filled him with sorrow but he entered into no controversy with them regarding their difficulty. Instead, he gave them an example that they would never forget. His love for them was not easily disturbed or quenched. Think about that. His love for them, for us, is not easily disturbed despite our best efforts or quenched. He knew that the Father had given him all things into his hand. And that he came from God and went to God. He had a full consciousness of his divinity. But he had laid aside his royal crown and kingly robes. And had taken the form of a servant. One of the last acts 
of his life on earth was to gird himself as a servant and perform a servant's role. Now we're going to focus a little bit on Judas. Before the Passover, Judas had met a second time with the priests and scribes and had closed on the contract to deliver Jesus into their hands. Yet he afterward mingled with the disciples as though innocent of any wrong and interested in the work of preparing for the feast. The disciples knew nothing of the purpose of Judas. Jesus alone could read his secret. Yet he did not expose him. Jesus hungered for his soul. He felt for him such a burden as for Jerusalem when he wept over the doomed city. His heart was crying. How can I give thee up? The constraining power of the love was felt by Judas. When the Savior's hands were bathing those soiled feet and wiping them with a towel, the heart of Judas thrilled through and through with the impulse then and there to confess his sin. I've never read this. I had never read this. But he would not humble himself. He hardened his heart against repentance. And the old impulses, for the moment put aside, again controlled him. Judas was now offended at Christ's act in washing the feet of his disciples. If Jesus could so humble himself, he thought, he could not be Israel's king. All hope of worldly honor in a temporal kingdom was destroyed then. Judas was satisfied that there was nothing to be gained by following Christ. After seeing him degrade himself... As he thought, he was confirmed in his purpose to disown him and confess himself deceived. He was possessed by a demon, and he resolved to complete the work he had agreed to do in betraying the Lord. Yeah, so I, I wasn't really aware of that, that little conflict going on behind the scenes. But it rings very true to me. I can see myself in that. Yes, Teresa? I think I've read somewhere in her writings as well that he also was hoping that by doing this to Christ, that Christ would come out, the king that he wanted him to come out, you know, right. fight against it. That he would refuse to be taken. I'm sure that was part of the, part of the case, because that's what, that's what they thought a ruler would do. So I know this is a long quote, but I was intrigued and touched by these insights, and I wanted to share it. There's more. But hearing this description of Judas's reaction reminded me uh, of a little bit of come and reason history way back. Some of you may remember very early days of our ministry before we were come and reason or known as come and reason. There was a group of folks who would get together and speak on God's character of love and they call themselves the good news tour. Anybody remember that? We're talking about maybe 2008, 2009 time frame. Well, in order to promote their events, they had a professional illustration company come up with a somewhat startling illustration that reenacted the scene that we've just described. But Jesus was on his knees washing the feet of political leaders. George W. Bush, Kofi Annan, Osama bin Laden, Madeleine Albright, and some others. I have a very poor resolution uh, copy of this image, if any of you remember it. So all the political leaders are there on the stage, sitting beside each other, and Jesus is washing their feet. So they use this on flyers, posters, promotional materials to uh, advertise their events, but it got rather interesting reactions visceral reactions from Christian groups, non-Christian groups, veterans. Uh, they characterized the image as offensive. They insisted that, they, that the flyers and the posters be taken down. Why do you think that image caused so much controversy? I don't think that was their intention. They may have wanted to get attention. They may have wanted you to do a double take or give you some cognitive dissonance and have you thinking when you saw the, the image. But I don't think they wanted a controversy or have people insist that it be taken down. Why do you think? I, it, caused, it made me a bit uncomfortable when I first saw it. 
Or at least it, it made me do a double take. It made me think. It's much easier to read and imagine through kind of our filters and our biases whose feet we think Jesus should be washing and whose we think he shouldn't. And see, I thought that that was a perfect reflection of what I thought Christ would be. I did too. Yeah, I thought, what better way to portray loving God yes. than somebody that would humble himself and wash the feet of people that were unlikable to some? His enemies. Yeah. I don't Our enemies. Oh, I thought the same thing. And I, that's, I'm sure, why they, why they developed that image. That that's was the picture they There was. Yeah. So, for instance, veterans groups... Uh, rejected or uh, were upset that Osama bin Laden was sitting there on equal footing with the President of the United States, their Commander-in-Chief, with the former Secretary of State, um, as a sworn em- enemy of our country. They were offended by that. Yes? There's a difference in, though, the, the story of Jesus washing the feet. He was washing the feet of his disciples. Granted, Judas was, was among them, but elevating, or I mean, it, it is sort of elevating a broad variety of people to a position that that's not what he did. He didn't wash the feet of um, the Pharisees, for example. I I don't know that he would or wouldn't have exactly, but I can see how it would, people could come up with logical and reasonable ways to be um, uncomfortable with that image. Oh, I don't disagree that there's discomfort there. I personally think he would have washed the feet of, of the Pharisees in a heartbeat. Or Osama bin Laden, given the opportunity. I don't think there's anybody that Christ would not have washed. Or Lucifer. Yes. Yeah. What we just read about his feeling toward uh, Judas, he hungered for his soul. He hungers for all of our souls. Had any of the Pharisees shown up, he would have washed them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I believe that with all my heart. So I think that was one of the, the bones of contention was the, the equal footing, which again, I think was purposeful. Have you ever heard the saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross? Are we all not terminal? Are we all not equally in need of the healing remedy that he offers? Yes, you had a comment. Actually, when Jesus told you that, what you need to do, do it now. He was telling to repent. That was to me the, the option because I think he wanted to save him. You know, he watches, I think he watches speech to you. Yeah. So, and I think there's also discomfort on the other side of the stage. So there's discomfort in seeing Jesus in a lowly, humble, stooped position, bathing the feet of his enemies. But there's also, the the title was or is, servant God. So there's some people that may even be able to accept Jesus in that position, but if we believe the Father and the Son are one, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that this is an exact picture of God the Father on his knees, washing the feet of his enemies. And I think that causes some people discomfort. Because they, they don't see those two with the exact same character. Yes. Well, it's the same problem with Lucifer. He couldn't see Jesus in that position. Right. It ruined all of his expectations of what a, a leader, a king, looked like. So there comes some problems, possible problems with a servant leader. Some mm-hmm. dangers you mistook. Yes. And if you don't understand God's kingdom and how it works, and that the first will be last and the last will be first. And that you have to lose your life to find it. It's all backwards, really, from w- what worldly kingdoms value and esteem. That's another point that I have. If you are anxiously waiting for your God to come back in power and glory and punish and destroy your enemies, his enemies, then does it make you uncomfortable seeing him in a position of kneeling down and serving them in, in humility, in love? Is that the picture that you want to see? Yes. I mean, how many of us hear about these horrible crimes that are committed all over the world, and we feel this righteous anger about the suffering of the victims? Yes. But God... Even in the Old Testament, I would rather have the wicked turn from their ways. And that is so contrary to what we 
believe in what we want yes. to feel at the time because our version of justice is punishing those who have committed the wrong. Oh, so well said. Yeah, the Christian tradition of suffering being the solution to suffering makes no sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the endless hell doctrine. You know, God's going to perfectly cause humanity's suffering because of evil, which caused human suffering. It's senseless. Yeah. Yes, true. That's why Jesus knew Saul, Paul's heart. Mm-hmm. That's what he was doing. Yes. That's totally misguided. Yeah. but thought he was exactly right and representing that the Lord knew his heart yeah. his love for God right yeah this is at the heart of the imposed law construct and it's infected the vast majority of Christianity and it's preventing hearts and minds from being transformed by God's spirit of truth and love it shuts them down so I want to continue on with the quote Judas in choosing his position at the table, had tried to place himself first, and Christ as a servant served him first. Didn't know that. John, toward whom Judas had felt so much bitterness, was left to last. But John did not take this as a rebuke or slight. As the disciples watched Christ's action, they were greatly moved. When Peter's turn came, he exclaimed with astonishment, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Christ's condensation broke his heart. He was filled with shame to think that one of the disciples was not performing this service. What I do, Christ said, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter could not bear to see his Lord, whom he believed to be the Son of God, acting the part of a servant. His whole soul rose up against this humiliation. He did not realize that for this, Christ came into the world. This was his reason for being here. With great emphasis, he exclaimed, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Solemnly, Christ said to Peter, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. The service which Peter refused was the type of a higher cleansing. Christ had come to wash the heart from the stain of sin. In refusing to allow Christ to wash his feet, Peter was refusing the higher cleansing included in the lower. He was really rejecting his Lord. Listen to this. It is not humiliating to the master to allow him to work for our purification. I'm going to say that again. It is not humiliating to the master to allow him to work for our purification. The truest humility is to receive with a thankful heart any provision made in our behalf and with earnestness do service for Christ. Hello. All at the words, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me, Peter surrendered his pride and self-will. He could not endure the thought of separation from Christ that would have been death to him. Literally and figuratively. Not my feet only, he said, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not, save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. These words mean more than bodily cleanliness. So he's talking about more than bodily cleanliness. Christ is still speaking of the higher cleansing, as illustrated by the lower He who came from the bath in that day was clean, but the sandaled feet soon became dusty and again needed to be washed. So Peter and his brethren had been washed in the great fountain opened for sin and uncleanness. Christ acknowledged him as his, but temptation had led them into evil where they were bickering and jockeying for position. They still needed his cleansing grace. When Jesus girded himself with a towel to wash the dust from their feet, he desired by that very act to wash the alienation, jealousy, and pride from their hearts. This was of far more consequence than the washing of their dusty feet. With the spirit they then had, not one of them was prepared for communion with Christ. And if you think about it, that's what they were getting ready to do. After the feet washing, they were going to take 
communion. Not one of them was ready for that. Until brought into a state of humility and love, they were not prepared to partake of the Paschal Supper or to share in the memorial service which Christ was about to institute. Their hearts must be cleansed. Pride and self-seeking create dissension and hatred, but all this Jesus washed away in washing their feet. A change of feeling was brought about. Looking upon them, Jesus could say, Ye are clean. Now there was a union of heart love for one another. They had become humble and teachable. Except Judas, each was ready to concede to another the highest place in the kingdom. Now with subdued and grateful hearts, they could receive Christ's words. So think about the transformation that took place in these apostles because of one act of loving service. They couldn't go any further until their parents. Until then. But yet, they had walked with Christ for what, two and a half years, three years? Yes. And saw all the things that he had done. Up close and personal. And had done some themselves. They had performed miracles themselves. But not until that act, they really understand Christ's purpose. And three of them had seen him in, in all of his glory. Transfigured, yeah. What does that say about our need? And to what levels he was willing to stoop to provide this example that's still so relevant? Or what lower level could he go than be hung on the cross? Right. Right. And uh, I'm not sure if some of you have this book. This book is written by uh, just a collection of authors, many of them from the Good News Tour or from the history of this ministry. It's amazing and it's all about it's a whole collection of stories maybe 31 32 stories that tell this side of god's character um you can buy the book on amazon but you can also get it free online godscharacter.com you can download the printed version or audio version i highly recommend it so we're still in what tuesday's lesson wednesday's lesson So the fourth paragraph of the lesson says, Peter goes on to explain that a key difference between his kingdom, God's kingdom, and those of the Gentile nations is the type of leader that will emerge in his kingdom. So when I read that, I said, yeah, that is a key difference. But it is a product or an outgrowth of the key difference. What's the key difference between God's kingdom and earthly kingdoms? Love, unselfishness. How are earthly governments run? How are their laws enacted? Arbitrarily. Arbitrarily. Imposed. And how are they, how are they kept in place? How are they governed? Do we just do use the honor system? <laughs> Hope everybody does what they're supposed to do? Drives below the speed limit. No. The end of a gun. They have to be policed. Yeah. They have to be imposed. And violations have to be punished or discouraged. How does God's kingdom work? Love. Unconditional love. Love. He designed, he created his kingdom, his reality, our universe, everything, time, space, the way we function. And he designed us to operate in harmony with his character of love. That's, there's nothing in common. There's nothing in common with God's government and earthly governments. So yes, the type of leader that will emerge in God's kingdom is way different than the type of leader that is valued and esteemed in earthly kingdoms. But I don't think the type of leader is the key difference. It's a key difference. So, another quote, or this is from the quarterly. Those who wish to lead in the kingdom where Jesus is king must become servants because the leaders in Jesus' kingdom will be like Jesus. I think that's very well said. Thus, Peter is calling those church leaders, newly appointed church leaders, to the same ideal. 
the surrender and self-denial they saw in Jesus or they see in Jesus must be revealed in them as well in their relationship with their new churches. And there is a, there's a box at the bottom of Tuesday's lesson and it points out, I mean, sometimes Peter and Paul had some differences, but in this instance, there, uh, Paul's writings in Philippians 2, 4 through 8 coincides perfectly with Peter's instructions to the church leaders. The message says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So what does this picture of God do for our hearts? Is it evident why the Bible says his kindness leads us to repentance? Am I the only one? Does it, like I said, it breaks Peter's heart for, in a good way. Because we have hearts of stone. So let's move to Wednesday's lesson. A little expanding on this theme. The lesson is titled Clothed in Humility, which of course Christ was. It's hard to, to get down. And let's talk about, I mean, we do this ordinance in our church. We have, it's called the Ordinance of Humility. And we're not the only church. It's practiced in, in lots of denominations. It, it is a humbling experience. Can you get down on your knees and wash the feet of your spouse or your brother or sister or family member or friend? without them feeling the love and service from you and you feeling the love and service toward them, I don't think it's possible. So does being clothed in humility, does that seem counterintuitive sometimes to being in the position of leader? I think for a lot of leaders it is. They don't know the meaning of the word. Is being described as humble typically a compliment or more of an insult. Wednesday's lesson gives us, again, a little background, describes the class system that existed in the ancient world in Peter's days, and he called it stratified. So the classes and status and stratus and levels were clearly defined. There was an elite ruling class that had what might be called a commanding presence, and I think what he meant was armed and visible. Don't forget where they were. The so-called middle class was likely non-existent, and that left various groups of lower classes all the way down to the lowest rank of all, which was slave. The Greek word for humility actually described the proper attitude of those of a lower rank to have towards those of a higher rank. The same Greek word means lowly, insignificant, weak, poor, and describes people with no power or status in society. So that doesn't sound like much of a compliment. And really in that world outside of Judaism and Christianity, the word humble was associated with those of low status. To act humbly would not necessarily have been commended as appropriate conduct or a compliment. 
But isn't it interesting when we were looking at those traits of servant leaders that we heard humility, humble, confidence combined with humility. Those were listed as common factors in successful servant leadership. So Peter's advice in chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, was definitely a bit counterculture for the time. It still is. That text in the remedy says, Young people, respectfully listen to the counsel of those who are older. That's really missing right now. And follow their wise leadership. But all of you, old and young alike, treat each other with humble and loving service. Because... God is the opposite of self-exaltation, and his very nature opposes pridefulness. He pours his healing power into the humble. Therefore, surrender yourselves under God's almighty healing hand, that he might restore you, uplifting you to his ideal in due time. Pour out your worries, frustrations, and burdens upon him because he cares for you. Yes. Jesus was condemned more than once for hanging out with prostitutes, taxpayers, mm-hmm. lepers. The lowest, the lowest of the low. status in society. I think it was the same reaction as Judas had in watching him as a servant because their idea of who they hoped he would be. He was, he, they wanted him to be the Messiah, the one that they thought was coming to deliver him, them from the Romans and... To exalt himself, yes, with a crown and with power and vindicate their years in captivity. That's really what they wanted. And somebody who hung out with with those classes of people, I mean, it just didn't mix. It really messed with their their definition of, of what they wanted to see in a Messiah. So we have another quote from one of the founders of our church. She's giving instruction to pastors and church leaders. She says, to succeed as Jesus succeeded, lead humbly as Jesus led. Jesus, the dear Savior, has given marked lessons in humility to all, but especially to the gospel minister. In his humiliation, when his work upon earth was nearly finished and he was about to return to his father's throne whence he had come, With all power in his hands and all glory upon his head, among his last lessons to his disciples, was one upon the importance of humility. While his disciples were contending as to who should be greatest in the promised kingdom, he girded himself as a servant and washed the feet of those who called him Lord and Master. The conclusion of Wednesday's lesson says... Sure, anyone could be humble before God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Also, it's relatively easy to be humble before those who are above us, have more status or power over us. The true test comes when we reveal humility towards those who are under us, who have no power over us. That's the kind of humility Peter is talking about here. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. Is that our own humility or is that God's humility through us? I think it has to be God's humility through us. I I know myself. I don't think I'm capable of conjuring it up on my own. <laughs> it's not not my natural. My natural heart is at enmity. So yeah, it would have to be His working. Maybe eventually, if if we have been transformed, you know what I mean, and and our characters have been corrected. Still, it's still through Him, no doubt about it. But it may become more natural for us. It may become the default reaction rather than the exception. Yeah. One more quote on Christ's humility. This is from Sons and Daughters of God. And this is just, like I said, when you think about the condescension, when you think about, I don't know, especially for us who have been believers all of our life, maybe it's not as shocking or it doesn't affect us as much when you think about the condescension of laying down divinity or God and condescending to become human instead in order to save us. Again, it's the difference. It's the distance between infinity and finite. And that distance is infinite. 
that's the level to which he stooped. So she says, in consenting to become man, Christ manifested a humility that is the marvel of the heavenly intelligences. In other words, this theater and spectacle that we are, the people watching it marvel that he did this. The act of consenting to be a man would be no humiliation were it not for the fact of Christ's exalted pre-existence. We most open our understanding to realize that Christ laid aside his royal robe, his kingly crown, his high command, and clothed his divinity with humanity that he might meet man where he was and bring to the human family moral power to become the sons and daughters of God. The meekness and humility that characterized the life of Christ will be made manifest in the life and character of those who walk, even as he walked. How much respect would we lose if we lived in a mansion and we gave it all up and become homeless by choice? Yeah. In order to save the homeless person. And it was the only way. Give our mansion to someone else. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, to me, it's hard to, it's hard to comprehend. All right, so let's move to Thursday's lesson real quick. I thought this was a strange, a strange inclusion in this week's lesson, but we'll talk about it. This lesson's entitled, Like a Roaring Lion. So we know what that text, that, uh, refers to. And again, Peter Peter's writing these these letters, these books against the backdrop of persecution. So he and his followers, these new churches are experiencing the great controversy theme not just as an abstract theology or something they read in a book. They're experiencing it for reals, up close, personal. They're being persecuted just for what they believe, just for existing. This is experiencing that in a way that I don't know. I can't comprehend. I'm not sure if anyone in this country can, at least not yet. Um, I think our day is coming. There's people around the world who know exactly what they were experiencing, but I have trouble putting myself in that space because we're, we're so free to, to worship as, as we believe. So there was, there was no doubt there was a war going on for the hearts and minds of those new Christian converts just like there's a war going on today, right here, for our hearts and minds. Revelation 12, 7 through 9, talks about how that war started, the origin of evil. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought using truth and love against the lies and deceptions of the dragon. But the dragon and his angels fought back against the truth, spreading more lies about God and Jesus, his son. But his lies were not strong enough. They lost their place of esteem and respect in heaven. The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, that leads the entire world away from God and his methods of love, was cast out of the hearts, minds, and affections of the loyal beings in heaven. He and his angels were cast to the earth, the only place in the universe where beings still believe his lies about God. The end of the second paragraph on Thursday says, Yet the good news is that the devil will ultimately be destroyed in the end. Is that really the good news? And what, what is implied, do you think, in that statement? Vengeance. Who's going to destroy the devil? I imagine Christ crying when he has to do that. That was one of his most blessed angels. Covering cherub, highest exalted created being. I can't imagine how God feels. If it was my son or my creation, there's no way I could smile about it. Right. Oh, I don't think so either. So we're definitely living in enemy territory. I don't think there's any doubt about that. How do lions hunt? What's their, what's their methodology? Watch a little Nat Geo Wild <laughs> if you're unsure. But they're stealthy. They stalk their prey. They try to keep hidden and undetected till the very last minute. Last minute attacked. 
So, and they might toy with their prey, but their eventual goal is the same. They have one desire, one wish. Satan is subtle, he's stealthy, he's wise. He knows our weaknesses maybe better than we do even. He knows the best ways to exploit them. We might not be aware of the danger unless we remain alert, clear-minded, and self-controlled. We're told to resist him, standing firm in the faith, and he will flee. I just will wrap up. Sin damages, sin destroys, and the devil doesn't want to just cause you or your loved one's pain, heartache, make you cry. He wants nothing less than to destroy you and destroy as many of God's children as he can. Yes, the devil is real. The battle is real. Our sufferings are real. But the God of all grace has overcome the world and defeated him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Thanks for your participation today. Let's close with prayer. Father, what a beautiful picture. Uh, What a beautiful example you have given us. We're grateful for that. We only ask that you would continue to refine our characters, transform our hearts, so that our behaviors more accurately reflect you and let us be this type of servant leader in our relationship with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.